from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Robert Reed. Bob grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland. His parents had him on a tight leash growing up, so when his parents died when he was 18, Bob decided to travel all over the world. Unfortunately, he found his life heading downhill for the next 20 years as he was searching for something. He's now retired and feels that he's found what he was looking for. I started the interview by asking Bob where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I grew up in a very tough Protestant working class area. It always amuses me somewhat that my parents were very strict, very religious, and actually very snobbish. I always thought, you know, what are we doing in this tough working class area? And my parents are so correct and proper all the time, always chastising me. If I, if I spoke with a, a rough accent or anything like that, I got chastised, or in fact, I got beaten. <laughs> they believed in corporal punishment. And the one th- good thing about the way my parents raised me was that they, they raised me to be open-minded. Here in Northern Ireland, there was a very strong uh, Catholic-Protestant issue. You're either one or the other, but my parents made sure that I was introduced to a lot of Catholic families and knew a lot of Catholic kids my age, so I didn't really see any difference. And later, that confused me a lot. When I went to school, I was interested in the arts mainly, and uh, nothing else really interested me. And uh, my father, he insisted that you couldn't provide food for the table by painting pictures. <laughs> I left school at an early age, and then he insisted I got a trade. So that was me inducted into the world of reality, as he saw it. So, Bob, why were your parents so different? You know, I, I've never, ever been able to figure it out. I, I was one of these children who were to be seen and not heard. I soon learned not to ask questions. I grew up in a strange world where there was no affection, no show of love, no no explanation for anything. Just do what you're told and everything will be all right. They also died early, so I didn't get a chance to ask questions when I was grown up. So it's still a mystery to me, but I, I believe that it was something to do with the war. My father served in the Second World War in the Navy, and when the war was over, you know, all those guys were promised everything by the government, but a lot of them were given nothing in return. They were promised good housing, jobs, all kinds of stuff. But apparently he and my mother and my sister lived in a squalid flat in London, after the war, and he decided that wasn't good enough, came back to Belfast, and 
the place where I grew up was the only place that he could find housing at the time. Well, that that's where I grew up, and I'm not saying that my parents were cruel. They were just extremely strict. They brought me up as best as they knew how. Unfortunately, I was somewhat shielded from the real world in that I wasn't allowed to hang out with my peers because they were the wrong type for me. Like I say, I was brought up with a good knowledge of Protestantism and Catholicism. So for a while I couldn't see any difference between the two, and I didn't really understand why there was two separate faiths. I still don't know why my parents seem to be so different. I have no idea. And my sister won't give me any answers. I also have another brother. He won't give me any answers because we've never learned to communicate on an emotional level. I'm like the black sheep. (laughs) It sounds like you were estranged from your brother and sister. How early on was that? From as far back as I can remember, I I noticed that. I was the odd one. (laughs) Maybe every family has an odd one, but I was definitely the odd one. I mean, my brother, he, he would play football and stuff like that. I would rather sit in the house and draw a picture, things like that. My sister, she was like the princess. In fact, her name was Elizabeth. I think they named her after <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. Uh, my brother, he was the manly one of the family, and uh, maybe I was just superfluous to requirements. I'm not sure. Like I say, these things were never explained to me, and I still have no explanation. I find it amusing, but still a great mystery. So even growing up, Bob, they couldn't feel like they could relate to you? No. No. In fact, um, I can still remember them telling neighbors that, you know, I was the odd one. I didn't talk a lot, and people would say, you know, what's the matter with Robert, Mm. which is my proper name, and uh, they would say, oh, he's just odd. Just let him be, (laughs) Well, maybe I was odd. I was very uh, reclusive. I had learned not to ask questions. I hadn't had learned very early not to speak back. Like I say, my parents did believe in corporal punishment and would administer it at the drop of a hat. So I was a quick learner. <laughs> <laughs> now, you said at some point you left school or or at some point you went to... Yeah, I, I became frustrated. Schooling wasn't easy, easy either. In the area I grew up, it was tough. And I became frustrated because I I wanted to be an artist. And they kept telling me, oh, you have to have English, math, A-levels, and then go on and get O-levels before you even think about becoming an artist. And in my little mind, I couldn't see any reason for that. It was the start of my rebellion, I suppose. So at the age 15, I quit school. And then my father, he flew into a rage and decided... I was going to have a trade, so he marched me to the shipyard in Belfast and enrolled me as an, imp- as an apprentice joiner, a ship's joiner in Belfast shipyard. For the first year, I had to work as an office boy, sort of a runner, and then I went to the joiner shop in Belfast. I hated it. It was a big industry at the time, and I hated it. I still remember... Thousands of men walking to the shipyard every morning. It was like clones. It was like something out of George Orwell's. I just hated it. And I was determined 
that I wasn't going to be one of them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Belfast being Belfast, they were mostly Protestants and uh, mostly very bitter. I did meet a few people that were more open-minded. I met a couple of Marxists who I like to have the conversations with. A couple of people from England who were a little bit more open-minded and couldn't really understand this duality of religion in Northern Ireland. So that that was kind of a, a godsend to me, that it was a little bit of relief from the normal humdrum of things. My parents died at an early age. My father was 42. He died. Uh, he just all his organs gave up. And then finally a heart attack killed him. And then my mother died three months later. Oh, my gosh. She had died of cancer. She had had cancer for 14 years, and they told her that when she was first diagnosed, they told her that she would live for seven years. Uh, I wasn't told until the day she died that she had cancer. That's mm. the type of upbringing I had. Everything was very, very secretive. How old were you, Bob? I was, I was about 18 at the time. So that was me off the leash. There was no, no more... Uh, control in my life. Bob's landline started to get too crackly for the interview, so we switched to his cell phone. You know, I had to make a quick decision of what I was going to do with my life. I thought, okay, I'm going to travel. I wanted to go explore the world. Well, I did that. I, I started out with a short trip to France. I traveled through England, down to Dover, and got a ferry across to France and hitchhiked around France. Didn't speak a word of French. People must have thought I was crazy or something, but I found that people were very kind and helpful. I found my way to hostels. I stayed in hostels at the time and came back home. I just loved the experience of being away and freedom and meeting different people. And I thought, well, that's good. I'm going again. So I I did. I went again. I explored Europe quite a bit. Over a period of years, I made my way into Africa, stayed there for a while, and Middle East. Why was it that you had to wait until your parents passed away before you felt you had the freedom to travel? I was never allowed to do anything on my own. My parents made sure we had family holidays, as they called them, every year, two weeks holiday usually in London or somewhere in England. We had a country cottage, which I loved because I could go work on a farm at the time when I was younger. But apart from that, I wasn't allowed to do anything on my own. So when my parents died, I found this great freedom. Were you still living at home at the time? Yeah. uh I was to share an apartment with my brother, but my brother and I didn't get along by any stretch of the imagination, so that wasn't working out at all. So the obvious thing for me was was to say to him, yeah, you have the apartment, I'm gone, see you later. (laughs) You said you visited various parts of Africa and the Middle East. Yes. Mm -hmm. And which parts of Africa and which parts of the Middle East? Mainly Rhodesia. Nigeria. I stayed in Cape Town for a while. I went to Durban for a while. That was Africa. And then I I went on into the Middle East, into the United Arab Emirates. I stayed in a kibbutz in Israel 
the kibbutzi lat for six months. I, I would have problems now remembering all the exact dates. But that was somewhere near the Yom Kippur War around that time. I enjoyed it very much, but I always had the urge to be somewhere else. And I should point out I had become pretty dependent on alcohol and other drugs by this time. I was, in fact, an addict at the time. That interfered with my interest in people. I had a great interest in people, but the, the alcohol and the drugs detracted from that. There were times when alcohol and drugs just weren't available, which was, in a way, good. I'd suffer for a while, but good came out of it because I learned something about the cultures that I happened to be in. I carried on through into India and uh, traveled through India all the way up to Nepal. I found opium dens in Nepal. Well, I almost ran out of funds. I was in a terrible state, and I still remember it. Now, this is strange. I was sitting outside this opium den, and outside of Kathmandu, in the foothills, and I was staring out at this, just an abyss, sort of wondering what to do with myself, and, and a voice said, you're looking in the wrong direction. <laughs> I thought, that's strange. And, uh, but I turned around, and there was a Buddhist monk there, and he spoke perfect English. He must have been educated in America or Europe. I said, man, man, what are you, what are you talking about? He said, uh, it's obvious you're looking in the wrong direction. I said, I'm not really looking in any particular direction. He said, you are. You're looking outward. <laughs> and I thought, this guy's off his lid. He said, well, what you're looking for is inside you. It's not out there. It's not out in the, in the material world, it's inside you, which any fool could have told me at the time, but I, I just wasn't receptive. I had turned against religion completely because I saw too many diversities. I saw all the faults in religion, but that stuck with me. It didn't make it much of an impact at the time, but it stuck with me, and obviously I still remember it. So later in life, after a lot of adventures and misadventures, I settled back in Northern Ireland. How many years are you talking about, Bob? Well, I'm talking a lot of years. I stayed 14 and a half years in the United States. This is interesting. I went there on a six-month visa and uh, stayed 14 and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> I finally got into a treatment into a rehab center in Tucson, Arizona, this was a residential treatment center. I finally needed to tackle what was going on with me. What was the incentive for you to do that? Share pain. I lost everything due to drinking and drug addiction. Everything, including my identity, my, my sanity. Yeah. Everything was gone. I'd wound up in a padded cell for three days. People thought I'd had Korsikoff syndrome. It's a condition mainly due to alcohol where you, you, your brain is so damaged that you never regain the, the ability to communicate or take care of yourself properly. When you were in India and you ran into that monk, you said we were pretty much at the end of your funds. And, yes. Mm -hmm. But somehow you were able to go to the next step, which was, I guess, at some point going to the United States. Yeah. I, what I, happened? I managed to get... I managed to get back to London. When you travel, as I was doing, 
you keep running into people and you keep exchanging tips about where to go, um, places to find work, so that you make sort of quick money to, to for your next trip. Um, good places to stay, cheap places to stay. There's lots of information shared among travelers. But anyway, I, I went back to London and I worked in a, a frozen pea factory, which was sort of around the clock hours. You could work 24 hours a day if you were capable. So the hourly wage wasn't good, but you could amass money pretty quickly. So I did that, and uh, I actually joined the British Army for three years. Came out of that. I had lots of money when I came out of that. The drinking was good because I was posted in Europe, and drink was very cheap. So, but anyway, that's my my next big move was the United States. I went there in nineteen nineteen eighty. I went to Alaska. That was to be another great adventure. Because I'd heard about Alaska and I wanted to see Alaska, and I did. I went there and I ran out of money again and had to get a job in a cannery. Again, I, I made quite a bit of money. Uh, I went on the commercial fishing fleet for a while. It was scary, dangerous. Everything that can be said about it is, is true. Uh, but I again, I made a lot of money, and then I thought I'm going to travel the rest of the United States to see what it's like. So I, I bought a 1969 Dodge van. This was in 1982. And I traveled down the Alcan Highway through Canada, back into the United States, hugged the West Coast all the way down, down into Mexico, bummed around Mexico, the beaches for a while, and then back up to San Francisco. Ran out of money, took a job in a theme park, did okay for a while. Eventually, the, the, the drugs and or the alcohol would destroy any kind of lifestyle I was having, and I'd have to just drift on, relocate. I, I wound up riding freight trains over America. It was a railroad bomb. It's just pointless. I, I had no, no goal in life anymore. I, I, I was just traveling for the sake of getting away from somewhere. So there was no point to anything I was doing. And I wound up in Arizona. Uh, I was living rough out in the desert, just outside of Tucson. And I came out of a drunk one day, and I couldn't, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't stay laid down. I couldn't die. I couldn't bear to live. Someone helped me to this rehab place called the Lark. It was a detox center. I didn't know what it was, but they took me in and put me in that padded cell. Apparently, I couldn't form a full sentence. And then later, after about 10 days, they introduced me to the uh, treatment center, the rehab center, where I was to begin my recovery. I'd spoken to a, a counselor in the, in the detox center, and I explained, look, if I have to go back out in the streets again, I would rather somebody just shoot me dead right now because I can't take any more. I'm, I'm beaten. I can't drink and I can't not drink. I I just didn't know what to do. So they referred me to the to the rehab to the treatment center. Thank goodness, and it, it was to change my life completely. Turn it around, one hundred percent. While in the rehab center, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
and Alcoholics Anonymous in their meetings, they always referred to seeking the help of a power greater than themselves. And that almost drove me out of Alcoholics Anonymous because I'd become very anti-religious. And any mention of the word God would uh, make me very suspicious. But I, I wanted to know what it was like to live a normal life again, so I stuck with it. I had a sponsor, and this sponsor, I was at a meeting, and somebody was speaking at this meeting and telling, saying how wonderful their life had changed, and it was all down to their belief in God, and I had said, I thought I'd said to myself, but I said out loud, that's it, I'm out of here. And my sponsor grabbed me by the shoulder and sort of turned into a psychopath and said, what the hell is wrong with you? And uh, well, I said, well, you know, I don't believe in God, and I, I'm sick of all this stuff. I'm, I'm just, I can't take it anymore. So the sponsor, to paraphrase, said, if you would just shut your mouth, it was said a bit more crudely than that, but if you would just shut your mouth and listen, you would hear these people talking about a power greater than themselves, not God, not any faith or religion, just a power greater than themselves. Now, if you'd open your eyes and look at these people while they're talking, they're all happy, and you're not. So who, who has the problem? You or these people? And I thought, uh, uh, I'm the one with the problem. <laughs> it became very obvious. And I was also told that your problem is you, you've gotten better now. You, your, your emotions have leveled out a bit. You think you can handle the world now. You've become intelligent again, but you're getting more and more stupid. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that, yeah, I couldn't control my life before. What made me think I could control it now? So I chose a power greater than myself, and I chose nature, which was, to me, obviously much greater than myself. I, I, I got always had a love of nature, so I rekindled that love of nature. It progressed from there. I started reading spiritual books. Like what? Uh, I would read Waldo Emerson and a few other books, mainly based on Christianity. I, I read some Buddhist texts. I was just trying to be open-minded. Things started to happen for me. I, I, did, I moved on from the, the treatment center I had my own apartment, I had a job, I'd become a chef, I had a job in a very nice restaurant, I had a relationship with a lady, and things were going well, and then I began to get worried, because for an alcoholic and an addict, success can be a great danger, so I had to become more and more careful, so I, I, did, I really did attend more and more meetings and stuff, tried to keep an eye on my behavior, and... I was praying by this time. I, I couldn't tell you who I was praying or what I was praying to, but I was praying for the strength just to to live a fairly normal life. And things did get better. And part of, part of the uh, recovery program is to make amends to everyone and everything you can that you have wronged or harmed in your life. And I, I was going about that, and I, and I was going about it in earnest, and I was getting down the list, and uh, it dawned on me one day, I need to clear up my legal status in the United States. 
remember I said I was there on a six-month visa, right. and this was 14 and a half years later. <laughs> I went down to the state building in Tucson, Arizona. There's a border patrol place there. So I, I walked in and told them, I explained the fact that my visa had run out a long time ago, and I wanted to clear things up, and I, I, I probably needed to have a work permit and stuff like that. And the guys behind the desk said, Oh, yeah, we'll take care of that, okay, and said, just wait a minute. So I stood at this desk for a while, and then a couple of minutes later, a couple of Border Patrol guys came in behind me and put handcuffs on me and put me in a holding cell. And this holding cell, during the course of the day, filled up with mostly Mexican guys, and I was shipped off to Florence, Arizona, on a bus, without being able to notify anybody, but I, I didn't know where I was going. I thought maybe they were taking me to Mexico. <laughs> I was taken to a deportation center in Florence, Arizona, which was very, very strange. Most of the people in that deportation center were felons, and they'd, they'd come out of prison after serving their time in prison for felonious behavior and thought they were going home, but were to be deported. But first you go to this deportation center, then you go in front of a deportation judge, and then uh, it was a nightmare. But several months later, I was taken to Los Angeles LAX airport and put on a plane to London. When were you able to tell your girlfriend what was going down? I was able to make a phone call, and she was making trips out to this, 40-mile drive out to this place in the middle of nowhere, which is Florence, Arizona. My sponsor, my AA sponsor, was actually a lawyer, but wasn't able to do anything for me. It was, it was open and closed. I shouldn't have been there. I was to be deported. That was it. People who knew me were amazed. They, they always believed I was American. <laughs> they never knew I was any different. They obviously knew I had Irish background, but just took me for American. I guess for a while I thought I was American myself. Mm. <laughs> the one thing I did have was kind of a convoluted faith. I had a belief in something, and I started to believe there must be a reason for this. So I'm going to go through with it. I did not want to come back to Ireland, to, to Northern Ireland especially. And I told him that, and they said, well, okay, you have a choice of three countries you can be sent to. Well, I said, well, you know, United Kingdom's fine. I'll go to London, but forget about Northern Ireland. My experiences here were too horrific to want to come back here. Anyway, I, I wound up in London, homeless, on the streets of London, <laughs> sleeping rough. I, I had enough sense to stay away from most of the unfortunates who sleep rough on the streets of London because I knew most of them would be into alcohol or drugs, and I didn't want to get caught up in that again. I was in touch with some people in America. I, I had enough funds just to make phone calls. I didn't have, have enough money to get myself a place to live or anything. I was going to meetings, AA meetings in London. I got to talking to a guy from Scotland. His name was Howard. He had lived in, in, on a on a building site in London, different building sites for several years, and stayed in a hostel for seven years before he had found his own place. He offered to let me share his flat with him in London. 
if it would help me to get back on my feet. So I told him I'd think about that. It rained heavily that night, so I got on the phone to Hard, and uh, I, I was sharing his flat with him. I, I got myself a job. I should point out, I arrived in London with no ID, and things were pretty rough. I had difficulty even getting a job. I had to get ID first. I, I, I couldn't get any benefits or anything, so that, that was difficult, but I got through it. I got a job. Hard, the guy I was sharing the flat with, he was very religious. He was very religious. He was a Christian, devout Christian. And what he didn't know about Christianity, I, I don't know where you would find out because he had a vast library of information and cross-reference books, and the guy was amazing. So he sort of got me interested in Christianity again. I'm not saying I became a Christian, but I, I began looking at Christianity a bit closer in the life of Christ and the disciples, and I found that that interesting. I was in the library looking through phone books. I found an uncle's number, phone number, in Belfast, and started to wonder if my brother and sister were still alive. So I phoned my uncle. He gave me my sister's phone number. I phoned my sister. She told me that her, her husband, my brother, his wife, and a niece that I'd never met were going to be in London that very weekend, and we could meet up if, if I liked, so I agreed to meet them. So I met my family that I hadn't seen for, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years. So it was a bit of a moving experience because there was a young niece there that I didn't know existed. She was eight years old at the time. But my sister said, look, if you don't like London, if you feel you can't live in London, you're always welcome to come back. You could stay in my place if you like. She says, I have a big house. You can have a room in the house. So I said, okay, that's that's fine. And they went away. Tell the truth, I hated London. I was living in the east end of London, and I had got this crummy job in a mattress factory, and it was very Dickensian. I almost expected to bump into Charles Dickens at any time. But then, and the wages were abysmal. So, you know, that stuck in my head. So six months later, I phoned my sister and said, yeah, I want to come back to Northern Ireland. So I went back to a town called Dromore in Northern Ireland, instead with my sister and brother-in-law. Didn't like it. We still couldn't communicate on an emotional level conversation was difficult. My sister is very Christian. She would go to her Methodist church twice a week. I, I'd go along with them just to go to church. I didn't like the Methodist point of view. So I, I thought, right, I've got to get a job here and become independent. So the first job I applied for, I got it, which was with the Northern Ireland Housing Executive they're in charge of social housing in Northern Ireland. So I got a job as a maintenance officer, and a house went with the job in Lisburn. I'm still in that house. I'm retired now. I don't work anymore, but I'm still in the same house. So that worked out fine. I made trips to Belfast quite often, and uh, I had learned that there was a, a nun, a Buddhist nun, giving meditation classes at Queen's University every Tuesday. So I thought, oh, I'll go along to that. That sounds good. I'd, find, I'd get 
into some sort of meditation and I did, I went there and I enjoyed the meditation classes but I, I wanted to know more about the Buddhist faith and the nun, she said to me, why don't you come down to the temple, we have a little temple in Belfast and meet some people and ask some questions, so I did that the Buddhist that I told you about in Nepal, his voice kept coming back to me, you know, you're looking in the wrong direction, you should be looking inside. This was my opportunity to do that, so I became a Buddhist. And I was a Buddhist for about six years, and thoroughly enjoyed Buddhism, and the whole, the whole outlook, the whole ethos of Buddhism... That was it until I became a Baha'i, or until I found out about Baha'ism, rather. My life has just spiritually progressed in that way ever since. I'm now a Baha'i. My next big adventure is to go on pilgrimage to Haifa. I'll be leaving on the 28th of this month. Maybe things will change greatly <laughs> after I come back from that, hopefully for the better, but I'm open to what's going to happen. I'm open to God's plan now. Not Bob's plan, but God's plan. <laughs> so, <laughs> I kind of look forward to that. So this is Baha'i pilgrimage at Baha'i holy sites in uh, Haifa and Akka, Israel. Yes. Uh, I was going to say I go to the Shrine of the Bab. The Bab being the forerunner of, the, of the Baha'u'llah. Yeah. Why don't you tell us the story of how you ran into the Baha'i faith and what was it about it that made you interested enough to check it out? I was taking a computer class in, in Belfast. It was actually a Photoshop class. Uh, I was always interested. I had become interested in digital photography and wanted to learn more about Photoshop so I could manipulate the photographs on a computer. There was a lady called Jania who was a tutor in that class, at some stage, she'd given us an exercise of taking a picture of our choice and super, superimposing another image on top of that picture. So as a class, we were doing that, and at some point she would go around, look over your shoulder and see how you're doing. She came to look over my shoulder, and I had taken a, a, a landscape picture of somewhere in Donegal in, in Ireland, and I had superimposed a photograph or, or a picture of a Buddhist deity on a large rock. And she said, oh, that's interesting. What, what is that? What is that? And I said, well, it's a Buddhist deity. I'm a Buddhist. And she said, oh, that's interesting. I'm a Baha'i. And there was nothing more said, but, uh, you know, my ear picked up and Baha'i. What's a Baha'i? <laughs> so curiosity got the better of me. When I, when I went home, I, I sort of Googled that. I, I go, I'll find out what a Baha'i is on the Internet. So I, I did. I, I sort of briefly read a little bit, and something about firesides caught my eye. But anyway, the next week, when I had a chance to talk to this lady again, I, I said, you know, I've been reading a little bit about Baha'is on the Internet. You know, I'm not sure where to look for good information or stuff, but I, I said, I've seen something called Firesides. Do you mind telling me, what is a Fireside? <laughs> and she said, I'll arrange one for you. <laughs> so she arranged my first ever Fireside. Firesides, as you know, are I think they're wonderful. It's where people get together, Baha'is, non-Baha'is, 
And Jania arranged it in a way that there was some spiritual readings and music. And she invited someone along to speak about their experience in the Baha'i faith. And she invited a guy called Dennis, who came all the way from Londonderry. Very, very interesting guy. I, I won't go into everything that he had to talk about, but very interesting. He came from a mixed marriage, mixed boyfriend, girlfriend. They, uh, all the problems in Northern Ireland evolved with that, and he was a philosopher, and he had explored all the religions and wound up as a Baha'i. But he did some reading from a beautiful little book called The Four Valleys and Seven Valleys. He was reading the story in this little book. It sounded like a love story about this this guy that was pursuing his loved one and came up against all kinds of obstacles, things that got in his way and diverted him from his, his quest to, to find his, his beloved. And finally guards got in his way. He evaded the guards and climbed this garden wall and there in the garden and lamplight he saw his beloved. That touched me. I, I thought, man, that guy, he's talking about me. I've been searching for a beloved all my life and I've come across great obstacles but those obstacles have actually been signposts I've, I've been I've been pointed in all sorts of directions to get to this point and the, the beloved I've been searching for is obviously God I thought right I'm going to find out more about this Baha'i faith I didn't become a Baha'i right away I became a bit of a nuisance, I think. I asked so many questions, and Baha'is were great. They told me, yep, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to investigate. I went to summer schools. I went to firesides. I went to winter school. I went to book one study. People may not know what a book one study is. There are seven books at the moment called Ruhi Institute books. I shouldn't go through what each one is right now because <laughs> I'd probably get it wrong, but it starts out at book one and you go through, work your way through to book seven. And they're basically about the Baha'i faith. The tutor who took the, the book one, we don't like to call them teachers. Teachers not a very good word because there's a, there's a kind of an equality through the Baha'i faith. We don't have preachers. We don't have churches. But the tutor was a young girl, 19 years old, and so animated and so wonderful. She amazed me. And uh, I finished book one. I, I became more and more friendly with Baha'is. I was finding out more and more about the Baha'i faith. And basically, I realized that Baha'u'llah had been the latest manifestation of God. And rather than following an older manifestation of God, such as the Buddha, or Jesus, or Moses, I should be following the latest manifestation of God for this time. So if I wanted to find the beloved, the beloved, I needed a guide for this day and age. So I, I decided, you know, that, that, that Baha'u'llah, is who I believed in, and I became a Baha'i. I declared as a Baha'i that is where I am at at the moment. How long ago was that, Bob? That was in December of 1998. 
which is not so long ago. I'm very involved with the Baha'i youth because like most Baha'is, we see the youth as the future. And, and in fact, most religions of the world should see their youth as the future. And most non-religious people of the world should see the youth as their future. We need to ed educate our youth for the future to become brighter. So I, I'm very, I'm very much involved with empowering the youth in whatever helpful way I can. But my my big big excitement right now is going on pilgrimage. I really look forward to it because it'll be people from all over the world. I look forward to meeting them and finding out what their perspective on life is and the Baha'i faith and how it's working for them. As you can see, not, not only have I found a faith and a belief in God, I somehow or other have managed to find a love of life which didn't exist before. I'm completely different from what I was before. But I had to go through what I had to go through in order to be the way I am now. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's always twenty twenty. Uh-huh. <laughs> Bob, when you described your earlier life traveling yes. all over the world and especially your time in, in the United States, mm -hmm. it so reminded me of Jack Kuryak's book On the Road. Oh, yes. I've read it many times. <laughs> Did you relate yeah. to it? I could in, in some ways, and in quite a few ways, actually. My biggest problem really was the drugs and alcohol. That, that, that detracted from everything I was doing. It's pointless saying if I could do it all over again, I'd do it differently. But, you know, I think I really could have been a good anthropologist or sociologist or something like that because I really was interested in different peoples and different cultures. It's just the first thing I would do is find out what their local temple was or their drug of choice. My goals were, were a bit mixed up. I, I got my priorities all wrong, we put it that way. But it got me to where I am now, like I said. Oh, I, I forgot to point out, I am an artist now. I did become an artist at last. I, I just, I have my own studio in Lisbon. And more recently, I've been trying to incorporate some some spirituality into my paintings. I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes. <laughs> Comes full circle to your story. What I believe now is the innate human kindness, the love we have for one another. I couldn't have done it without the help of other human beings. And that love, it's so inexplicable. It must come from a source other than ourselves. Skeptics would say, oh, it's just something we're born with as a species, but I see it as something much, much more than that. I think our creator put us here, first of all, to evolve in a way that we can adore our Creator, but also to adore the tremendous gifts that we've been given. And if we can find out ways of doing that more and more, we will evolve as a species, and we will come together. I do believe that we will come together as a species. I probably won't live to see that happen, mm -hmm. but that doesn't matter. That's got nothing to do with it. Time is irrelevant. That's the promise of the Baha'i faith. And that's what's so beautiful about it. We, we can come together. We don't have to be separated by our belief in God because we all believe in the same God. 
So why should we be separated and fight about it? (laughs) God doesn't need me to defend God. (laughs) But I think God likes it when I praise God. Uh, And I I don't mean me. I mean me as a species, the human race. As Baha'is, I find so much kindness, so much understanding. I'm a funny kind of a recovering addict alcoholic. I, I could be reduced to tears very, very easily at, a, at an act of kindness. I see the beauty in everything. Whereas in the past, I would have been very negative and couldn't see beauty anywhere. So <laughs> it's funny what the clarity of mind does to you. You know, I, I enjoy life, and I, I enjoy seeing other people enjoying life. Well, actually, I'm not surprised that you delved into alcohol and drugs because it's normally the sensitive people who can't find that channel of their sensitivity in the world, that mm. they then, the only way they can deal with it in this quote-unquote cruel, cruel world is to ease the pain through drugs and alcohol. Yeah, I, I think it was an escape for me. I, I was maladjusted. I, I didn't know how to handle reality. So that, that was a great escape for, for me. The escape became very painful. Fortunately, it didn't cost me my life. It yeah. does for a lot of people, but fortunately for me, it didn't. So, there, you know, there must be something I'm meant to do yet. I don't know what it is, but I'll find out. <laughs> In a strange sort of a way, I'm grateful to the drugs and alcohol for getting me to where I am or being a part of getting me to where I am. I hope never, ever to touch them again, but the experience in a strange sort of a way did me some good. It was definitely the long path to be where you needed to go. Suffering is certainly a path toward finding truth. I, I can definitely see why Baha'u'llah said, you know, not to not to take any mind-altering substances. It's so clear now. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so clear. And, and, you know, I would definitely try to steer anybody else away from those things. I am in a position where if, if people have a problem with drugs or alcohol, I can listen to them and uh, give them some direction if they want it. You know, I don't go around looking for people to to get them off of drugs and alcohol, but if people do have a problem, then I'll do what I can for them. You know, a lot of these social agencies that are dealing with those that are on drugs and alcohol, I would think it would be helpful to have someone with your experience on their side assisting yeah. in that work. My name is with a couple of agencies, and they do get in touch with me from time to time. Mm. But it's, it's something I, I tend to keep on a low profile, mainly for the anonymity of the sufferer, because, you know, it is a very... It still carries a lot of stigma, the, the addiction to alcohol or drugs. So I tend to be careful about anyone whom I'm talking to about who has a problem with that type of thing. There's always hope, and I know there's always hope because of my own case and many, many others that that have experienced. That that, that is something I I can, whenever a person is receptive, I can pass that on to them. But I also know the strength of of addiction in, in that if a person is not receptive, you cannot make them receptive. Life in recovery is something you've got to want for yourself. 
I, I would almost say normal life is something you've got to want for yourself, but try explaining to anyone what a normal life is. I don't know how you do that. Okay. <laughs> so I, I just call it life in recovery. Well, Bob, thank you so much for telling your story. It was so interesting. I, I like the fact that we come from all walks and all backgrounds of life. It doesn't matter what walk or background you come from. You have a purpose in the Baha'i faith. There we are. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Reed, a Baha'i from Northern Ireland, describing his life and the struggles he encountered to find fulfillment in his life. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, go to the website www.bahai.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. such a long time when she looked inside herself she wasn't sure what she'd find she had to open the door a little wider now she had to dig a little deeper inside her somehow she walked into the fire alone and scared stiff now she says his leaving was a strangely wrapped gift Little Jamie's body has never worked right He's never had the peace of sleeping straight through the night His parents get weary and his parents get worn Still they always bless the day that little Jamie was born He opens the door a little wider now Lifts them up a little higher somehow It may look to the world like a 24-hour shift But his folks know life with Jamie's just a strangely wrapped gift what is it that we're really made of? How else will we ever know? Till the hand puts us in the fire Do we burn or do we glow?
box on my doorstep looks sad and forlorn. The wrapping paper's faded; it's all tattered and torn. For a moment, I wonder what on earth it might be. Till I see the tag and realize it's made out to me. It's gonna open the door a little wider now. It's gonna lift me up a little higher somehow. I used to run like the blazes, now I get the drift. Someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. Someone who loves me, someone who really, really loves me, someone who loves me sent me a strangely wrapped gift. Truthfulness is the foundation of all the human virtues. Without truthfulness, progress and success in all the worlds of God are impossible. Impossible for any soul. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.